Let's uh, start with some uh, healthy confession, which is always good to have in a service. Put your hand up if you watched one already there. You obviously enjoyed it. Uh, The ITV adaptation of Vanity Fair. How many? Oh, well, not many. Well, I trust in the interest of charity, those who didn't will forgive those who did, but perhaps we ought to forgive those who didn't watch it uh, for not watching it. Because if you did, you'll know that at the start of each episode, Michael Palin, uh, in the character of the book's author, William Makepeace Thackeray, gives or gave a brief summary of the story so far. And each time he ended that summary with the words, For this is Vanity Fair, a world where everyone is striving for what is not worth having. Now the original book is a 700 page moralistic satire of 19th century, early 19th century society in which Thackeray often interposes a story with lots of personal reflections. In it, for example, he says Vanity Fair is a very vain, wicked and foolish place full of all sorts of humbugs and falsenesses and pretensions. Now, Thackeray probably got the idea of Vanity Fair from Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan's uh, older classic. And in uh, Vanity Fair, uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, Vanity Fair is an unavoidable hazard for the pilgrims on their way to the celestial city. And Bunyan describes it as full uh, of wealth and fame, pleasure and position, and many other follies are for sale. And Bunyan, no doubt, got the idea from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, which is rarely read, but full of wise put-downs of what many consider to be important. And the older translations, as you may remember, begin, Vanity of vanities, says the teacher, all is vanity. Before Bunyan, on Shrove Tuesday in 1497, there was a very famous pre-Lent scourge, pictured by several uh, artists called the Bonfire of the Vanities. Items that were considered vain and spiritually dangerous were thrown on, such as mirrors, cosmetics, fine dresses, playing cards, manuscripts of secular songs, paintings, sculptures, It was a kind of radical Lenten sacrifice, an extreme form of downsizing or decluttering. Today we'd take the stuff to a car boot sale and use the proceeds to buy more stuff. And we tend to sing Isaac Watts' hymn with its line, All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. I never give a thought to our vain strivings and accumulations. Already in those songs we've had in the hymns so far, they've just kind of hinted at that. Anyway, in 1987, which was a week before the Wall Street crash, the American novelist Tom Wolfe rather prophetically published his modern classic, The Bonfire of the Vanities. And that too is a caustic satire on modern financial fever, 
social pretensions, class divisions, excessive consumption, institutional corruption and injustice. And Woolf admits that his early model for the novel was Thackeray's Vanity Fair. And he describes one of his characters viewing Manhattan, the city of ambition, the dense magnetic rock, the irresistible destination of all those who insist on being where things are happening. Sometimes secular writers see things that Christians also need to see. Vanity Fair is anywhere, anytime, where people get that adrenaline rush of being where things are happening and striving for what is not worth having and cannot last. Where emotion triumphs over reason. Where image takes precedence over reality. When personality and popularity are valued above integrity and loving kindness. Now I know I'm supposed to be talking about Jonah. But as soon as you mention Jonah, people automatically think fish. Which is a pity, because they don't automatically think of Vanity Fair. Because the story centres, as we read, on Jonah's call and reluctance to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh was the Vanity Fair of the ancient world. Now, we don't know exactly when Jonah was written. He appears as a prophet in 2 Kings 14, the only other reference to him. Uh, but the story itself in the book of Jonah reflects a period of Nineveh's history known to archaeologists about 200 years after Jonah's recorded in 2 Kings. And then certainly Nineveh was where things were happening. It was rich, it was populous, it was cultured, it was a vibrant city of pleasure and wealth. It had parks, rivers, canals, ornate buildings. And it was where morals were loose, where religion was corrupted, where greed ruled and where the poor were crushed and where it was all happening and everyone was striving for what was not worth having. In fact, one commentator pictures Judah, this is a spoiler alert for uh, uh, next week, uh, when he eventually arrives in the city, he says, no, uh, Jonah feels small, one man against a vast metropolis, lost like a needle in a haystack inside this gigantic vanity fair, this Sodom of a city, the tiny figure feels he can go no further. He stops and, well, you have to wait, come back next week for that, or read the book at the back end of the Old Testament. So, is it any wonder that um, a good Jewish prophet would want to avoid venturing into this den of iniquity to tell them to prepare for the bonfire of the vanities. Good Jewish prophets kept themselves apart from the vanities of the world. However, things were just as bad at home. Jonah's contemporaries, Isaiah and Amos, were shrilly condemning the vanity fairs that existed in Jerusalem and Samaria. 
Whereas in Nineveh, people were trampling each other in a quest and race for wealth and status and where injustice and corruption reigned. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. You drink wine by the bowlful and use finest lotions, but you don't grieve over the ruin of your land. One of Amos's many comments and criticisms. So, when we meet Jonah, he's running away both from the vanity fair of Nineveh and also the vanity fairs of Samaria, his home. And instead of travelling northeast, as God has told him, he sets off westward on a ship to Tarshish, which no one knows where it is, but it's probably southern Spain. That illustrates his desperation, given his viewpoint. It's almost understandable. But it's not the only reason why Jonah refused to go to Nineveh. It was also the uh, chief city of uh, Assyria, which was an enemy of Israel. It was constantly harassing Israel. If God, Jonah would have thought, wanted to zap them, to kingdom come, good old God. They deserved what they'd get. Get on with it. Don't send me to warn them. Just do it. And then Israel would rest in peace. And Jonah wasn't the only Old Testament prophet to condemn Nineveh. Nahum and Zephaniah, another two of the minor prophets, condemned it. And Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea and Micah all had harsh things to say against Assyria. It was a constant thorn in Israel's side. Jonah hated and feared foreigners, as did all Jews of his time, especially those who had the temerity to impose their rules, control Israel's borders and tax its goods. Israel saw itself as a spiritual conservation area. If foreigners wanted to find God, they were welcome to come and ask. But Israelites did not go as missionaries to foreign lands. Jonah was being asked to be a pioneer minister in an alien culture and a hated country. No one in Old Testament history had done that before. There had to be a mistake. God couldn't ask someone to do that. Jonah must have misheard. Besides, of course, if he did get there, he'd soon be arrested, probably, jailed, maybe executed as a spy. You don't just walk into enemy territory and say, Hi guys, God's got a message for you. But they don't recognise your God. They just see Jonah as some foreign agent blundering in on a crackpot mission to poison someone or hack into the infrastructure. And that's not all. If, Gen if Jonah went to Nineveh, then he'd be considered to be a traitor to his own people. You just don't fraternise with the enemy. Jesus, who tells us, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you, wouldn't be born for another seven centuries. 
If Jonah went to Nineveh and lived to tell the tale, he'd have his Israelite passport confiscated or he'd be executed for treason as soon as he stepped foot back in the land. Frying pan or fire? He didn't fancy either. And there's yet another reason for not going, another spoiler alert, because it comes in chapter 4. Jonah knows what God is like. Full of gra- is gracious and full of compassion. He's got a sneaking suspicion that God might even want to forgive and reform the Assyrians. Theologically, he can't cope with that. His faith is challenged. His traditional views are threatened. Besides, where's the justice in letting Assyria off? And wouldn't their friendship actually be another threat to Israel's independence? Wouldn't their sheer size and power overwhelm the local economy? Wouldn't Assyrian customs clash with Israel's traditional faith? Jonah can't cope with the idea that in the words of the hymn, there is a wideness in God's mercy. Nor, sadly, can some Christians. So, six reasons why Jonah may have refused to go. So don't just think of Jonah as a bad boy example of disobedience. He may have been wrong, but he had his reasons. Now pause there. What is God asking us to do? You to do now? The list of jobs in the notice sheet for today. Something that seems unlikely to you? And what excuses do we come up with for watering down and running running away from the hugely demanding challenges of the New Testament? Love your enemy. Love your neighbour as yourself. Give. Don't hoard. Care. Support. Don't discriminate. Don't seek personal return. Don't judge. Turn the other cheek. Seek justice. Go into a confused world alienated by a traditional church and live out the values of the kingdom. And in Tennyson's words, to go to wring out the want, the care, the sin, the faithless coldness of the times, wring out false pride in place and blood, the civic slander and the spite, ring in the love of truth and right, ring in the common love of good. The fact is that some of the time, at least, most of us prefer to hover around the fringes of our vanity fair, like Becky Sharp scrounging stuff to maintain our lifestyle, seeking Instagram Status to maintain appearances, a way of life, which according to Jesus and not just Thackeray, is not worth having. Now, I'm not saying Jonah was right. He wasn't. And apart from not listening to God, he made two big mistakes. The first was to move. Have you ever tried to get a car to change direction when it's stationary? Can't do it. And so with us. If you want to avoid doing what God asks, stay still. Don't move. 
put the spiritual earplugs in. On no account, do anything. Because once you move, God can switch the points, turn the wheel, change the wind in an opposite direction to blow you back on course. And that, of course, is what happened to Jonah. You know the story, a tropical storm blew up and uh, threatened uh, to swamp the ship. The sailors believed, like the characters in Shakespeare's Tempest, that it had a supernatural origin. One of them had angered the gods, and Jonah admitted bravely that it was him. And he accepted that to save the ship, he had to go overboard. And then, he made them throw him in. His second mistake, he played the blame game. He laid the responsibility of his death on them. So when he was missed by his family and friends, the sailors would either have to lie, oh, he was swept overboard, poor man, or admit to murder. Jonah, why didn't you just jump in? Why shift the burden of your guilt onto someone else? When we know how to correct a mistake or deal with a sin, just do it. Don't try and save face by making innocent people share the responsibility. But then came three unforeseen consequences. First, the crew threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. That was a last resort. They were throwing away their livelihoods. They'd either been paid to transport it um, to Tarshish and the owners would want their money back when it wasn't delivered or they'd bought it themselves to sell in Tarshish. Either way, without it, they were bankrupt. Jonah's refusal to do what God wanted resulted in other people losing out. Don't ever think that no one but you will suffer if you avoid God's call or disobey his instructions. The results of our action or inaction will spread out like ripples on a pond. Others will lose out, even if we never know or see how. And here's a second unforeseen consequence. The sailors try to save Jonah. Now they weren't Jews, they were probably what we'd call Syrians or Palestinians, more potential enemies of God. The only good Jew, as far as they were concerned, would be a dead Jew, or one like Jonah, who paid his fare and they got his money firmly in his, their pocket. Why bother trying to save him? The author is making his Jewish readers gasp at the terrible thought that there are good decent, honest, law-abiding, humane unbelievers. It's a warning against self-righteous religious pride and a call to personal humility. Last week, uh, the uh, Women of the Year Awards celebrated the sacrificial efforts of, among others, a GP who gave up or gives up her um, holiday uh, every year to help Yazidi refugees in Iraq. 
at her own expense. And the founder of the Magic Breakfast, who's raised money so half a million primary children can eat before school. Not everyone, whatever their faith, is striving for what is not worth having. And remember, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, that Christians are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared for us in advance. We're not to leave them to the secularists. And the third unforeseen consequence was that not only did the sailors try to save Jonah, they also prayed for forgiveness and then started to worship God. Outsiders praying to God and being heard. That was radical theology. God doesn't hear the prayers of non-Christians, right? Wrong, according to the book of Jonah. So, if you disobey God and yet he actually uh, brings, his good, he brings his good out of your bad. And that's not an excuse for disobeying him, but it tells us that God is never defeated by our folly. Those things you can't forget having done and constantly regret. God is not defeated by those. And that finally brings us to the one verse that everyone gets hung up about. The fish. Because the story is not about the fish. It's about God and his compassion on the world. And that is it. The book of Jonah isn't a hack reporter's interview as the bedraggled seaweed-covered castaway hauls himself onto dry land. Jonah is a carefully constructed moral tale maybe based on some event that happened years before it was written. In the early church, they just regarded it as a moral story, interestingly. But it tells why Jonah was called, why he rebelled, why he, how he survived and how he was rescued. And the point is that Jonah survived, however it may have happened. And the real point for us is that it shows that a good, devout prophet like Jonah has got the Vanity Fair mindset all the time, looking out for number one, always seeking what he wanted first, rather than what God wanted. And perhaps some of us also have that mentality, that mindset still. Jonah is the Old Testament's preface, as it were, to the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus says it's the pagans who strive over what is not worth having. And it's the pagan that a preface to Jesus' call to go into the world where it's all happening, where everyone is striving for what's not worth having. And in that fairground, to demonstrate an alternative way of being community, of discovering meaning, of taking good news to the people that we most despise or fear or try to ignore. And in obeying that call, hard as it is, we gain a divine friend and a purpose 
that is really worth having and one that lasts. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Father of mankind, forgive our foolish ways. Reclothe us in our rightful mind. In purer lives, thy service find. In deeper reverence, praise. Amen.